Well, good evening. We'll go ahead and get started. It's pretty hard to believe that one week ago it was snowing when we started this class. You guys remember that? Big old fat flakes of snow outside, and now it looks great. I don't know if it is. I haven't been out uh, since this morning, but it looks really nice. Hey, just before we get started, I want to let you know that this is the last in session of our Lessons from the Holy Land, and we won't have any Wednesday night classes next week in the church. It's spring break. There'll be a concert, by the way, in this room, uh, Jesus Culture, if you're familiar with them, want to come on down, it's at 7 o'clock, but we don't have any classes next week. The next week, so two weeks from tonight, we start up a whole new set, and if you go to church here, you'll see it in the bulletin. If you don't, just go to our website. In this room, we're going to study, uh, it's called Straight Talk for Modern Christians. We're going to look at the book of Ephesians, which tackled some pretty controversial and just kind of some hard uh, issues in those days, and I think it's actually harder hitting today in our culture than it is then. So we're going to study the book of Ephesians and just talk. We'll talk about things like the first week, we'll talk about are you predestined to go to heaven or hell or not. I mean, that's how Ephesians starts, is about predestination. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about gender roles. I'm sure that won't be controversial. Uh, spiritual warfare, it's just got everything in this letter. So that's what we're going to do in here in a couple of weeks. So I hope you join us, bring your friends. As you can tell, we've got plenty of room and uh, plenty of food out there as well. Uh, text your questions during class. There's the number. It's, I think it's also on the bottom of your handout, but just text in any questions that you have during class because we'd love to answer your questions uh, as, if, we, if we can. Well, we've been touring Israel, basically, or at least as close as you can get without going there. And we were in the south, if you remember, down in the desert, in the Negev, in the wilderness of Zin, at Masada and Qumran. Then we went over near the coast on the western side into the Shephelah, and we were at Megiddo, the site of Armageddon. Then in our last lesson, we went up north to the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus lived where he did a lot of his ministry, not all of it by any means, but did a lot of his ministry in the area of Galilee. And in this lesson, we'll finish by going to Jerusalem. And so we won't be able to obviously see everything in Jerusalem. There's way too much there. But there are just a few sites that I think will give you a taste and make some of the biblical lessons come alive a little bit. On your handout, I put this particular map because I think it's just a great map of the Jerusalem and its environment at the time of Jesus. We're going to start on the east, which is the right side of your map, on the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane. Then we're going to go into Jerusalem and we're going to go to the pools of Bethesda. The reason to do that is there's a great story in the Bible at Bethesda. And I don't know about you, but when I saw it, even though I'm familiar with the archaeology of the site and all, it kind of hit me that this was a whole lot bigger deal than I thought that it was. And then we'll go up to the Temple Mount, to the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, and then onto the Temple Mount and look at some of the, uh, some of, uh, the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which are what up, are up there now. So we're just going to take a little tour from the Mount of Olives across. Let's start there. On the Mount of Olives, you are, and these are all mountains. We're in the Judean wilderness. We're in the highlands now. We're not in the desert, but we're not up in that pastoral setting in the north in Galilee. We're kind of in the mountainous region. And so this is looking from the Mount of Olives over at the Temple Mount. Jerusalem is also on a hill, 
on a mountain, and in between is the valley of Kidron. And so we're looking across the valley, and it's, it's very misleading because we walk down and up that valley, and that is not fun. I mean, it's, a, it's a quite a little hike. But so there's a valley in between the two. As you look at the Mount of Olives, you quickly realize why it got its name. The Mount of Olives has a lot of olive trees, obviously, and this is looking from an olive grove straight across at, uh, you can see the Temple Mount and the walls of Jerusalem over there. But the olive groves are really interesting uh, and just all the olive trees on the Mount of Olives because the Israelites did so much with olives. I mean, they were multi-purpose. They used everything about it. And the Garden of Gethsemane, one of the various groves in the Mount of Olives, has an interesting name because not only would this have just been a park-like place, it would have actually been a place of business. The word gath means press in Hebrew, and the word shemen means oil. So gath shemeni, gath shemen, gethsemane means olive press. It's a place where they were doing, uh, this is actual commerce. And so I'm going to show you a picture. This is a small olive press. But this is enough. This comes from the village of Katrine. It doesn't come from the Mount of Olives, but I want to show you what an olive press looks like and how it works because they would have, I mean, it's called Gethsemane, the place of the olive press. So they're sitting here around all these olive groves and they had an olive press and you might have lived outside Jerusalem. You get up in the morning, you go to work and you're going to press olives all day. You're going to make olive oil and you're going to export it. You're going to sell it. But a small press like I'm going to show you would not only... Uh, provide enough for an entire village, but it would provide a pretty good export business as well. But this is what an olive uh, press looks like. There are two things here. The first one in the foreground is obviously the big stone, and what you would do is you would have the harvesters would come and they would pour the olives into the trough, and then there would be, on this smaller one, people would be pushing it. That's what we did when we were there. On the larger, more industrial size, and in some of the places they had, it was like a factory, that you might have an animal pulling it around. But you could push that around in a circle, and it would crush and break the shells of the olives, and it would crush them. There were people there. As they were crushed, they would reach in, and they would put them in these burlap bags. Basically, they just put them in these cloth bags, and uh, they just dump the olive pulp in there. And then that machine in the back, you can tell what it is. It's got a screw on it. And it basically is just two stones that you would stack the bags in there. And then they would, you know, they would basically turn the lever. And they would literally press it. And the oil would just flow out of that. And they would catch the oil there. And then depending on the kind of olives you had and when you were harvesting them made the difference whether it was industrial olive oil to be used in your lamps or if it was olive oil for cooking or if it was extra virgin olive oil. It all depends on when you get the olives and what kind of olives they are. But so they would have had uh, at least one of these olive processing things in the Garden of Gethsemane. So I know sometimes we tend to think, oh, he was in the park. You know, he was down at the Myriad Gardens, right? That's where Jesus was camping out. No, Jesus was in an olive garden because, uh, grove, because A, it would be cooler. It's protected a little bit from the weather. But during the day, there would be business going on there. In other words, it was a production facility. So 
Gethsemane, Gethsheman, is the olive press. Well, this is what it looks like there. As you just see, you know, just rows of olive trees, and it's hard to know where the Garden of Gethsemane is. By the way, when you go to Israel, everybody will pick a spot and tell you that's where everything happened, but almost nowhere do you know exactly where it happened. But there are Catholic churches built on the site of everything, right? Either Armenian churches or Catholic churches or whatever, and this is where that happened. Well, I'll just tell you, nobody knows exactly where the garden is, but it's in this area. I mean, it has to be on the Mount of Olives. Uh, Jesus even talks as he's looking across at that view you just saw and weeps over Jerusalem from there. So Jesus and his disciples may have stood right here, taught here, or slept there, uh, but it's right in this area, and that's what it looks like. You just see all these little olive trees around. Before we leave the Mount of Olives, though, in the Garden of Gethsemane, I want to show you uh, the imagery, because a lot of the biblical imagery comes from this agriculture. Look at this olive tree. The, this one that you're seeing here, these are fairly young. This is an ancient olive tree, and there are a bunch of these around, too. Notice how big this thing has gotten, how old it looks. And they actually get old, they kind of die. And the way olive trees work is, uh, like many, many other kinds of plants, is what you see, those little shoots coming out of the side, they start small and then they'll turn into a branch. So instead of just growing up, 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 it sort of gets bigger, bigger because of the shoots that come out of it. And so that one happens to have two or three small shoots coming out of the side and that's, that's how olive trees grow. And a shoot, this is kind of an interesting parallel. In Hebrew, the word for a shoot, in other words, a, a little branch that's growing out, is a netzer. The Hebrew word netzer means uh, shoot. And let me tell you a couple places in the scripture where you'll see this. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, there's a prophecy that Isaiah is making. Now, he's prophesying 700 years before Jesus. But he's making a prophecy, and it's a messianic prophecy. And he says this in Isaiah 11.1, 1, A shoot, a netzer, a netzer will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now, if you remember, Jesse is David's father. And so he's talking about the line of David, that lineage, as though it's, uh, in Isaiah's time, it's a stump. It hasn't died out, but David and his successors aren't kings anymore. You know, they've been conquered by the, uh, by the Assyrians. He's prophesying about the Babylonians are going to come and destroy it. So in other words, that line of Davidic kings, uh, it's not that there aren't any descendants of David, but they're not ruling Israel. They're going to they're be a time when they don't rule. And so he says that's kind of like this olive tree. It looks like it died. In other words, it, remember when David's, it's prophesied about David and Solomon is that that your kingdom will never end? Well, Isaiah is preparing the people. He says, it's going to look like the kingdom ends. When the Babylonians conquered, there's no Davidic king on the seat. He said, but from the stump of Jesse will come a netzer, a shoot. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. So there's going to be, in the future, one of these shoots come out of what looks like a dead olive tree. He says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Now you're tell, you can say, ah, oh, he's talking about a person. He's talking about a descendant of David. He's talking about the Messiah. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, he will delight 
in the fear of the Lord. And then a little further, it talks about he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Kind of a preview of the idea of the gospel. Jesus didn't come with a sword, you know, in the sense that they wanted the Messiah to kill people. He came and he basically convicted the world with the word of his mouth. And so righteousness will be on his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And so you get this imagery of a dead olive tree trunk, and that's where this comes from, is everybody who reads that understands when they hear there will be a netzer. Well, let me tell you an interesting coincidence, uh, and that is that you remember the town where Jesus grew up, Nazareth. Okay, let me tell you what Nazareth is in Hebrew. I mean, you can tell just from the sound of it. Netzeret. The town of Nazareth means shoot. I mean, it is the word netzer. It just comes to us in English as Nazareth. And I just think it's interesting, in just all, not just the big ways, but even the little ways. It's like God has a really interesting sense of humor. Is that Jesus, who is, according to Isaiah, the netzer, the shoot that will come up out of the stump of David and be that kingdom that will never end, grows up in a town called Netzer, right? I mean, how much do you need, right, to get this? So it's a, just a, it's a really clever idea. The other image that you see of, of this olive tree is the other things that they would do is they would, and this is common today too with plants, but they would graft in shoots onto an olive tree. If you wanted an olive tree that uh, produced more olives, you did a little genetic engineering, the ancient version of genetic engineering, you would graft in a shoot from another olive tree, and that worked. And then that becomes then a tree that produces even more olives, or better quality olives. Paul picks up this imagery in the book of Romans, over in Romans chapter 11. And he's talking there in that section of the book, he's saying, now some of you Christians used to be Jews. And some of you used to be Gentiles, non-Jews. He says, and the Jews were pretty arrogant. They thought only, we're the only ones God cares about. But then Jesus comes and he says, no, this good news is for everyone. He says, and some of the Jews could accept that and some of the Jews couldn't accept that. He says, but you Gentiles, I want you to be careful not to be arrogant because you are like a shoot that's been grafted into an existing tree. So don't be too proud. Here's what he says in Romans 11. He says, if some of the branches have been broken off, meaning some of the branches of the tree, the Jews did not accept Christ. And as Jesus said, then they're broken off and cast into the fire. He says, and you, even though you were a wild olive shoot, in other words, you didn't belong to this tree, you've been grafted in. In other words, God adopted you into the family. And you now share in the nourishment from the olive root. Don't boast over those branches. You don't support the root, but the root supports you. In other words, you, you don't have any reason to despise those Jews because it's only by God's grace that you became part of the tree. And so he uses that imagery of grafting into this olive tree. And you just see a lot of this in the scripture, and it's very graphic once you see these pictures and you think about it that way, that there's more going on behind the text sometimes than we can see. Well, back to the Mount of Olives and from the Garden of Gethsemane, or where that could, could reasonably have been, you look across, and this is what you see. There you see the wall of 
Jerusalem, and behind it, you're seeing the Dome of the Rock, and we'll get there at the end of our lesson, but the Temple Mount is back there, but that's the wall of Jerusalem. And before we leave here and cross the Kidron Valley and go over to the Pool of Bethesda, I want to show you one interesting thing, because one thing you'll notice in Jerusalem, and this has been true historically, and it's, and it's still true today, is a lot of Okay, this is an understatement of the century. A little tension between the Muslims and the Jews and the Christians, right? And that's been true for a long time. Well, when Jesus and his disciples left here, there are gates all around the city. They would have gone through, because it was a very common gate to use at that time, it's a very big gate, you're going to see in just a second. They would have gone through what's called the Golden Gate. And you can see it here, right below the dome, there's a tower, and in that tower, there's kind of that heart-shaped arch there. That's the location of the Golden Gate, and, that's, and it's the closest to the Temple Mount. It's directly across. You have to go down into the Kidron Valley, and you have to come up that steep hill to get in. But here's a little closer look, same view. Down there at the bottom right, you'll see there's the, where there used to be a gate called the Golden Gate, and that's where Jesus and his disciples likely would have entered in his time, and it was a thriving gate. Now, however, it's been bricked up, and it was bricked up during the Mamluk dynasty, which is like 1200 to 1500 AD, so back in the Middle Ages. But in that time period, uh, Muslims controlled Jerusalem, actually had for several hundred years at that time, and one of the the common prophecies at the time, because there were Jews and Christians living there under Muslim rule at that time, but one of the prophecies out of Zechariah, I'll look that up, you probably haven't read that lately, so just knock that out tonight. It's in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, there's an interesting little messianic prophecy that they took that passage and the Jews thought that's where the Messiah is going to come off of the Mount of Olives, and he's going to come and he's going to enter through this golden gate. Well, the Christians said, hey, the Messiah's already come, but we agree with you. When he returns, he's going to come from the Mount of Olives, and he's going to come through the golden gate. Okay, pause for a second. You remember Jesus' entry into Jerusalem? That's this idea. They didn't catch that at the time, but that's where he comes from, isn't it? He comes from the Mount of Olives, and he enters there. He just doesn't enter quite like the conquering king they thought. He enters on a donkey, doesn't he? But in any case, by the time of this Muslim rule, the ruler at that time decided, you know, this is dangerous talk. We don't want to hear any about this Messiah business. And so what he did was he decided, I'm just going to forestall this prophecy by bricking up the entrance. And so since that time, the Golden Gate hasn't been usable. It's bricked up. Now, you just have to stop and think about this. So this is going to be the Jewish or Christian Messiah. Do you really think that bricking it up is going to stop him? But we know what it was, and you'll see a lot of this, actually. It was kind of PR. It's like, hey, guess what? You think your Messiah's coming through here? I'll just brick it up. Now, what do you think about that? And you honestly see quite a bit. When we get to the Dome of the Rock, you're going to see something even more provocative than that. But there's, there's an awful lot of you know, provocative things because there's been a lot of tension over time. So Jesus and his disciples, though, would likely have entered through that area. Well, let's move into the city itself, and then at the top of this picture, you'll see the pools of Bethesda. And there's some dispute in the documents about exactly what that name is. Was it Bethesda? Was it Bethzatha? 
Bethesda is the traditional. It means the house of mercy. And there appears to have been a tradition, by the way, of healing at this place. And you're going to see that when we get into our study here in just a second in John chapter 5. But there appears to be a tradition of healing. What I want you to realize, this is a model that I'm going to show you first, so you can kind of make a little sense, because what you're going to see are archaeological uh, ruins, what's been uncovered. But this is a model of what the pools of Bethesda would have looked like. Now, this is a small model, but this is huge. I mean, I thought, we're going to go see a little pool of water, you know, like maybe a little baptismal font, you know, a little pool. Oh, my goodness. Wait do you see the ruins. This is huge. There had to be springs there. There were deep cisterns that were dug there. There were tunnels that went all the way over into the city of Jerusalem itself and near the temple precinct. I mean, this area is massive. These pools are huge. So when you talks about having a colonnade around it with columns, you're not thinking somebody's little gazebo with a you know, fish pond in the middle of it. This is a huge area. And so there would have been tons of people in this area on a daily basis. They'd be there for everything you can imagine. They'd be there getting water to wash with and whatever out of the pools. But it's just a, it's a massive area. So let me show you some of what it uh, looks like now as it's been unearthed. But I just want you to see how deep this is. And you can see some of the uh, these are restored. This isn't all original. This, these pools, by the way, weren't just used in Jesus' time. They're used all the way through up until Crusader times and so forth. And so you're seeing the arches and uh, the buildings that are in that area. Here's where you'll start to see some of the cisterns and the pools. You see some of the columns there, the ruins of the columns. This area is massive. It, is, it had to have been a hub of the city. I mean, think about, in our terms... Think Quail Springs Mall a week before Christmas. You know, it's sort of like everybody's going to go there, right? Not me. I'm going to wait till the afternoon before because I notice that the traffic clears out, really, on the afternoon of the 24th. But anyway, this place would have been a hub of people because there's just there's so much water there. There's plenty of room there. There would be people in there teaching, people in there talking, uh, you know, people having coffee in the Starbucks right beside that. I mean, it was a bit, I just want you to get the idea of how many people would have been around this area. Here's down one of the cisterns. That's opening to the cisterns. So this is down where part of the pools would be. Uh, and they go really far down, and there's just a lot of water here, a tremendous amount of water. Well, there's an interesting story about this place, and I want you to envision how big it is, how many people there are, in John chapter 5, it says, Sometime later in the narrative, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the way, you always go up to Jerusalem. And in fact, you're going to notice that in the scriptures, is that they went up to Jerusalem. Now, I grew up in Kentucky, and there we used to go down to a town or you go up to a town. I cannot tell you that if there was any logic to that whatsoever. But I can tell you in Jerusalem, no matter where you are in the country, you go up to Jerusalem, even if it's lower than where you are. And the reason is, you remember that map? It is surrounded by valleys. It is Mount Zion. In other words, it's a hill. I mean, they call it a mountain. We'd call it a big hill. But it's an area. And so as you come into it, you're always walking up to the top of the mountain. You're always going up to the temple. 
So Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and it's surrounded by five covered colonnades. And I just want you to think about how huge, I mean, it's far, far bigger than this room. I mean, the ruins are just very, very large. And he says there, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And you can just imagine there, that could be thousands. And it wouldn't just be the blind or the lame or the paralyzed people. There'd be everybody else, you know, coming to do their household business and get their water for their households. But it would hold literally thousands of people easily in this area. So it's really crowded. It's really a big place. But I want to tell you, kind of give you an idea of what's happening here. There's a parallel idea happening in this story. So as we go through the story physically, I want you to keep this in mind. These people who are broken, who are paralyzed, who are blind, who are lame, Jesus comes in, and, and this healing that he's going to do here isn't just, oh, Jesus went up to get some water, saw a guy who was uh, paralyzed, and healed him. There's something hugely symbolic happening here. Is here you have the mass of humanity, and you have all these broken people. That is the world. I mean, Jesus did these miracles to signal some things to people, to send a message to people. And so here he comes amidst, literally, literally, a broken, hurting world. Literally. I mean, all these people who are blind, who are lame, who are paralyzed are there. Now, you may notice if you read your Bible carefully, there's a verse left out here because it was almost certainly added later. It's ex explanation. It says, and the reason these people were there, and this is true, by the way, it just probably isn't originally in this text, but it's true, is that periodically the water would get stirred up and there probably was a spring or something there that would stir the water. Well, what this verse tells you is that the tradition at the time was that an angel of God would periodically come, unseen, and stir the water, and the first person in the water after that happened would be healed. Okay, so that's the verse that's missing there. And so they explained it that way. And like I told you, not only when they excavated this do they find the pool of Bethesda, but even uh, around that time, both earlier, uh, earlier than that, there are some statues of some Greek gods of healing there too. In other words, this place not just to the Jews, had a tradition of being a place of healing. So the, the idea was is that whenever that happened, you would step down into the water. So there's a guy who had been there, and he was an invalid. He was paralyzed for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now that is an interesting thing to ask. I mean, on the surface, it sounds pretty silly, doesn't it? But it really gets at, a, I mean, Jesus is so brilliant. He asks this question. Of course, he knows the answer. You and I know the answer. The guy says, no, actually, I really like those uh, Social Security checks. And so, if you don't mind, I think I'll just stay paralyzed. No, of course not. He doesn't expect that answer. But it sets up an interesting conversation. So I want you to see the conversation he's having with this guy but I want you to see the bigger picture of what Jesus is doing. He's having a conversation with humanity. So here he is talking to broken humanity. because That's what these people are a symbol of, is this is all of us who are, we may not be physically paralyzed, but we are spiritually dead, right? We are dead in our sins, as Romans says, without 
uh, Jesus. So he comes and he says, do you want to be healed? Now, isn't that an interesting question? Because that's the question that you and I have had to answer at some point is, do you want to live? Do you really want eternal life or do you want to continue to live crippled? That's really the gospel question. I know it doesn't sound like it, but whenever you talk to somebody about the gospel, what you're really asking them is, would you like to continue to live life as a cripple? Or would you like to be well? Isn't that cool? That's what's happening here. Jesus is not just healing a guy. He's having a conversation with you and me and with our culture. And so he says to the guy, do you want to get well? And that's our, that is the question of the gospel. What does the guy say back? The guy says, you bet I want to get well, but I don't have anybody to carry me and put me in the water when it gets stirred up. So I'm sitting here on the hope that I'll be lucky enough to get in the water first and get well. What's his answer? Stop and think about it. He says, I want to get well, but I'm not capable of getting well. In other words, if, you know, if I could walk, I'd hoof it down there in the water and try to be the first guy in. And that's society's answer too, is when you say, do you want to continue to be a cripple or would you like life? And the answer is, I want life but I can't do it. You see how powerful this is, this exchange? Amongst all these people, this guy's answer is your and my answer. It's everybody's answer is, yes, I want to be well, but I don't know how. I can't do it myself. Now, he's tried for 38 years to do it himself, and you and I have friends who are, have tried for 38 years to get their life in order without Jesus Christ, and they're still paralyzed. They're still crippled. But this guy says, I want to, but I can't. And Jesus simply says, he doesn't say, oh, well, I'll put you in the water. He doesn't say, I mean, that's kind of the interesting thing. People that come to Christ say, look, I need to get my marriage fixed because I'm crippled, paralyzed. I have an addiction, or I can't get ahead in life, or I'm just emotionally bankrupt, or I don't know the meaning of life. In other words, we come and we admit, I'm crippled. I'm blind, I'm lame, I'm paralyzed, so heal me. But you know what, what, what people want? They want to be fixed in the way the culture tells them. So let me tell you, and I get this all the time, do you have a book I can read that'll get my life in order? Is there a counselor I can see that'll get my life in order? Well, those things can help. So what that guy's thinking is, hey, Jesus, if you could put me in the water when it gets stirred up first, I can get healed. What does Jesus do? Does he say, sure. I got some boys here, disciples. You guys hang around, push the other guys away. We're going to put you in the water. He's not going to do it that way, is he? He just says to him, then you're healed. Take up your mat and walk. And he does. Now, Jesus gets in a lot of trouble for this because the Pharisees are like, whoa, now wait a minute. That's a little supernatural. But Jesus' answer is always, we're not going to do it the secular way. I have the power to heal you. It's a powerful thing. It happened right there. Somewhere on those stones you just saw is where Jesus had this interaction. But I just want you to see that this isn't just Jesus healing a guy. This is a conversation with humanity that still goes on today. What a powerful, powerful message. I hope you never read that the same way again, is that Jesus is having this conversation about our ability to heal ourselves, and he's going to heal him in a way that isn't a self-help book, and it's not some seminar. It fundamentally begins with the healing words of Jesus Christ. 
Remember the shoot that was going to come and judge and was going to come not only condemn the world with the words of his mouth, but also heal the world with the words of his mouth, the gospel of our salvation. Okay, that's getting preachy. We'll save that for Sunday. But that's, it's a powerful little lesson, and it happened right there amongst all those people. Well, before uh, we leave there, though, I do want to read you one other thing. As you come up to that temple mount, uh, this, we're changing subjects a little bit. Remember I told you that you, you always go up uh, to Jerusalem. And uh, the Psalms of Ascent, I don't know if you read the Psalms very much, uh, but I would urge you to just, just read a Psalm every day. Psalms 120 to 134 are called the Psalms of Ascent, of going up. And they would sing these songs as they went on pilgrimages to Jerusalem, because you always go up to Jerusalem. And literally at the end, you go up to Jerusalem. From when you enter at the bottom of the hill, the Pool of Siloam, by the way, and 900 steps to get up to the Temple Mount. And they would sing these psalms as they, on these pilgrimages, and that's why they're called the Psalm of Ascent. And here's one. I want to read you 122. So just imagine this. You're coming up out of that Kidron Valley and going up, and this is a psalm of David. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, which is still part of the morning prayers for Orthodox Jews today. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brother and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, I will seek your prosperity. And it's interesting as Jesus is familiar with these psalms, when he and his family went up, they would have sung those same songs. He stands there and he looks at Jerusalem and he says, you want peace, but you won't have peace. Remember when he prophesies in Matthew 24 about the day is coming when not one stone will stand on another in this place. You want peace, but it eludes you because you will not hear the words of life. So the Psalms of Ascent going up into there, into the pool uh, of, of uh, Bethesda. Well, as you leave the pool, I want to talk to you about the Western Wall a little bit. And you come up, now we're inside Jerusalem. So we've gone through the wall, the gates of the city, and we're in the city. It's got four quarters or four sections. There's an Armenian section, a Muslim section, a Jewish section, and a Christian section in the old city inside the walls. Then you come up to the Temple Mount. And the Temple Mount today is not the one that Solomon built. It was a lot smaller because it's sitting on the top of a mountain. It's the one that Herod built. And what Herod did was he said, okay, I only got this much room on the top of the mountain, but I'm, I'm talking like three football fields here, okay? So what do you do? Well, you build yourself a humongous retaining wall, right? And then you fill it up with dirt. You got you a nice little big flat area. But you need a retaining wall because the original mountain's only this big, and he's enlarged the top of it. So he's put this huge retaining wall. That's what that is. That is a part of the retaining wall that Herod built, and it is a huge area. The original stones of Herod, you can still see the ones that, that were built 
uh, just before Jesus' time, if you go down below the street level, it's way down below street level now because things have built up over time, and you can see massive stones. They have no idea how they could have moved these stones. The stones you see now, some of those are from Herod's time, but a lot of those are from being repaired throughout the ages, you know, in the Middle Ages, the Crusaders, the Muslims, but that's still the retaining wall that holds up that flat temple mount, and we're going to go there in a minute. But before we do, I want to tell you about a special piece of this wall. We're now on the western side of the temple mount, and this is called the western wall. It's also called the wailing wall. There's actually quite a bit of wall there. They had originally built houses up next to it, and they still have, but they they went to the piece of the wall that's the closest to where the temple used to be. And I'll tell you how they know where the temple used to be in just a minute. But it's the closest to that gold dome up there, that Muslim shrine. And so they took that little section of the wall, and that's become what's called the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. This wall uh, can be visited, by the way, from 1948 to 1967. Remember, uh, Israel becomes a nation in 48, but they didn't own Jerusalem. The Jordanians owned Jerusalem. And so until the 1967 war, when Israel conquered this whole area and kept Jerusalem, Jews couldn't come here. They couldn't pray at this wall. They couldn't come anywhere near the Temple Mount. And so in 1967, now they can. And so this is what that piece of wall looks like. And People come there to pray. Anybody can go there to pray. But Jews come there to pray. They come there to do all kinds of stuff. And here's what it looks like a little later in the morning when we are there. And so the wall is on your right. This is just that courtyard in front of it. And it's divided in two. At the very bottom of this picture, you see that little wall. There's a small area below that in that section. Remember, the wailing wall is on your right there. That's called the women's side because the women and the men don't mix. Uh, women don't walk into that other side where the men are and go up and pray. I mean, this is an Orthodox Jewish deal, so they split like in the synagogue. So there's a small area for the women at the bottom, and then everything on that other side is the men's side or the men's area. I used to think this was sort of like going into a chapel, and you know, you light a little candle, you go up front, you cross. No, I'm not Catholic. But anyway, basically it would be a real somber place where you'd go in and pray. Oh my goodness. This place is a zoo. There are people up against the wall, you know, davening. You know, the Jews, it's called davening, this movement that they make when they're praying, or they're just people like us who are praying. A lot of people write prayers and stick them in the cracks of the stone, but, you know, they're praying, they're kissing the stones. But all around you is everything you can imagine. There are people over here praying. Matter of fact, I'll show you a couple of interesting pictures. Okay, right in the middle of this area, this guy on the right, this is an old rabbi. This guy looks like a homeless guy. I mean, his, he is dressed like a homeless guy. I mean, his, those clothes, he had to have worn those clothes for 20 years. I mean, they're just tattered and everything. He's got this tattered prayer shawl, and he's standing there. And behind him, what you can't see in this picture, is about 20 of his uh, students behind him. So these are black, hat, curly sides, and they're all you know, reading out of the prayer book. He's not just leading prayers. He is doing a drama. I mean, he's yelling in Hebrew, and he's just lamenting. He's crying. I mean, he is so into these prayers. And so, but right behind him, 
are a group of another group of Orthodox guys who are sitting over there with their prayer shawls up and they're talking. Next to him, matter of fact, right, walking right in front of him are a bunch of uh, Jewish people doing a bar mitzvah. Okay, so that kid's there for a bar mitzvah. So he comes parading in and they're singing and they're playing cymbals and he walks over to that closet, I don't think you can see it in the picture, and he takes the Torah scroll out for the first time and he parades it around and now he's become a man, he's become a son of the law and apparently the guy behind him needed a machine gun to make sure it was safe. You see a lot of automatic weapons, by the way, everywhere there. And so it's, a, it's just a zoo in there. I mean, everything you can imagine, it's a very celebratory kind of a place. And of course, if it's your son being bar mitzvahed, you're probably doing what Laura and her friend are doing, is you're looking over the wall. And sure enough, you look at the women's side, there are women over there praying, but there are a lot of women standing looking over the wall to see what's happening over there. In fact, that little kid's mom was looking over the wall because she can't come in there. And so it's just a very social kind of a place, but it's, a, it's not a holy place, but it's a revered place of prayer for the Jews. As you move on, you leave that Western wall. Remember when Jesus said, not one stone will be left on another? And when the Romans came in in 70 AD, so after Jesus is resurrected, they destroyed that area up there. They didn't tear down the retaining wall, but they destroyed some of the walls up there and they destroyed the temple building itself. They just levered those huge stones off the top of that wall. And that's what it looks like. It buckles the street from where those stones have fallen, from where they destroyed the temple up there. I mean, it's just amazing the devastation. You can still see the signs of that devastation when they destroyed that. But there's one really interesting stone here that I want to show you a picture of in this rubble. This stone, it looks like a corner, doesn't it? And it fell off the southwest corner, way up there on top of that retaining wall. And you can see where it's got a little area, like there's a, sort of a little parapet there. Well, that inscription, there's a Hebrew inscription right there. I'll show you. And it, this was knocked down by the Romans too. They levered it off, but it's kind of this nice little corner piece. And that little Hebrew inscription says the trumpeting place that's where up on the corner of the top of the temple mount one of the priests would come and blow the shofar the trumpet I mean, they didn't have trumpets in those days you know don't think louis armstrong think you know ram's horn you know blowing the trumpet to announce the sabbath or a festival that is one of the stones that got knocked down off the top where they would stand up above on the temple mount and blow that shofar so as you think about Jesus on the cross at the time, and you'll hear this on Maundy Thursday, because in here, as a matter of fact, on Maundy Thursday, we're going to do the communion story. And one of the pieces is, is Jesus is, is hanging on the cross. The time for the afternoon sacrifice would have been a guy who goes up on the corner, up on the temple, and you could hear this for all around and blows that horn. That's probably where he stood, was on that stone. Isn't that interesting? But you can still see that destruction uh, from that area. Questions? Because I want to make sure we get to the Temple Mount, but if you have uh, one or two, yeah. that'd be great. Yeah, I just have one. Um, does the word Netzer, um, is it a root of the word Nazarite? Like John the Baptist took a Nazarite vow? Uh, you know, I don't think, that's a good question. I'll have to look that up. I don't think so. I'll just have to look at the Hebrew and see. Uh, I, I just don't know. Uh, I don't think that it is. 
I think it's actually spelled differently because that z sound in Hebrew has more than one letter. But I may be mistaken. That's a good question. Well, let me show you an aerial view of the Temple Mount. So now we're going to go on top of where that retaining wall was. All right, we're going to go up there. It is not easy to get up there. But here's what it looks like from above. Now, used to be, see where the Dome of the Rock is? That's the Gold Dome. Used to be that little area is all that was the top of the mountain. Everything else is what Herod built up and put the big wall around to keep it stable up there. So he made this thing huge. But that's where the temple used to be, was in that area, and it was a fairly small area. But that's where the temple was, and right down below it is where the Western Wall is. And so this is the Temple Mount. In the center there, you'll see the Dome of the Rock. That's a shrine. And on the left-hand side, where you see just kind of the gray little dome, that's the Al-Aqsa Mosque. The Jerusalem is controlled by Israel, even though, of course, all nationalities live there. But the Temple Mount is controlled by an Islamic group called the Waqf. But it's, it's a consortium that controls the Temple Mount. So you go through Israeli security to get up there, but up there you see nothing but uh, Arab, you see nothing but Muslim Palestinian guards, and you see a lot of Palestinian people. And there are only certain times of the day that anybody else can come up there. And you certainly can't go up there during prayer time or during services in the mosque, that sort of thing. So it's very restrictive. On that Temple Mount, when you go up, you can only go up at certain times. You can't have a Bible. You cannot pray. You cannot talk about the temple. In other words, our tour guide can't talk about the temple. And sure enough, these little guards are wandering around and kind of listening in up there. And so you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to touch women. In other words, you can't hold hands with your wife. It just violates the Muslim sensibilities. And so when you go up there, you have to be just, it's very restrictive. You know, so there's no praying, there's no Bibles allowed. You, the Israeli security won't let you take it up there because they can't afford an incident. In fact, you take anything through that security, and believe me, they do security, and they don't mind profiling at all, right? Uh, you look like a terrorist, you probably aren't getting up there. I don't care what your passport says. So, but, you know, anything that looks, even looks like a weapon, they're going to arrest you because they, they can't afford to have an incident. If you remember a few years back, Ariel Sharon, when he's prime minister, or defense minister, decided, I'm going to go up onto the Temple Mount. Well, that was such... I mean, he didn't do anything, but it was very provocative. There were riots, 120 people killed just because he went there. You know, so it's, it's kind of a flashpoint. But it's difficult to get up there, but it's huge. Once you get up there, this area is just huge on top of the Temple Mount. It's amazing what Herod did. And then on the Temple Mount, this is the third holiest site for Islam, is this Temple Mount. The first is Mecca, where Kaaba is. Second is Medina, oh, these are in Saudi Arabia, and this is the third place. And I'll tell you why. It's partly because it's Jerusalem, but mainly because of what happened uh, with uh, Muhammad. But the Al-Aqsa Mosque is a functioning mosque. You can't go in there unless you're, at least now, anyway, you can't go in there unless you're uh, Muslim. And your thought to me is, is well, why don't you just tell them you're Muslim and walk in? Because you have, if you can recite the first chapter of the Quran to prove that you're Muslim, you probably could bluff your way in if you just don't look too Anglo-Saxon, right, like I do. But that you, you have to be able to recite the first chapter of the Quran to get in because they want to make sure you're Muslim. But that Al-Aqsa Mosque, according to the Quran, 
is the site where one night during his life, now this is back in Muhammad's life, so this is around 620 AD, you know, it's a long time ago. At night, he was taken on a physical and spiritual journey miraculously from Mecca to this spot. Al-Aqsa Mosque means the farthest mosque. That's all it means. Took him way over to this place, and from here, he ascended into heaven, talked to Moses, and then back down to earth, and then was miraculously flown back to Mecca. And so this is called the night journey. And this spot, this Temple Mount, uh, that's why this Al-Aqsa Mosque is here. And then the Dome of the Rock for a different reason, which I'll tell you about in just a second. But the Dome of the Rock is not a functioning mosque, it's a shrine. So the mosque is like a church up there. But the Dome of the Rock is a shrine. And this shrine literally houses a rock. And this rock, this was built in 691. It's when this uh, edifice was built. And it sits over what's called the foundation stone. And here's a picture of what is underneath that dome. And this is from above, is a rock. This rock is considered holy by everybody. And it's considered holy to Islam because that's the rock that they believe Muhammad ascended into heaven and then descended from heaven and came back to dictate more of the Quran, right? So they think that's the rock. Holy to the Jews because they believe that this is where the temple was, the original temple of Solomon, and that that is where the holy of holy was, holies was in the temple. That makes sense? The inner, inner part of the temple was on that rock. So the ark sat on that rock. Mystically, they believe it's the place where heaven and earth meet, meaning in those days they thought God lived in the Holy of Holies right there. And so it's very uh, holy to the Jews. It's also the place before the temple's ever built. You remember the story of Abraham? This is back in 2000 BC. Takes his son Isaac and he's prepared to sacrifice him, but God says, no, you're going to sacrifice the lamb. That rock. Before it was ever Jerusalem, before there was ever a temple there, a thousand years later under Solomon. And so this is a very, very holy place. So they believe that the temple used to be there, and now there's this Muslim shrine. But that's why that, west, that piece of the western wall, they want to be as close to that as possible, because that's where the Holy of Holies used to be. Christians, it's a holy site, but only because it's the Temple Mount, and Jesus was there. There's nothing mystically holy about that site for us. One other thing I want to show you, remember I told you there's an awful lot of uh, kind of provocation through time? This is the, it is beautiful by the way, that shrine, that uh, Dome of the Rock is beautiful. I mean, oh, look at all that tile work and the mosaics. Well, up across the top, that's Arabic, I mean, done into the tile in Arabic, and it's a, it's a quote from the 19th chapter of the Quran. Uh, verses 33 to 35. But I'll give you the piece of it that matters. There's a little piece in there. It's kind of a rebuttal to Jesus. They believe Jesus is a prophet, but certainly not the Son of God by any means. It's certainly not the Messiah, that Muhammad's the great prophet, and Jesus is just a good guy and, and another prophet. But it starts out by saying that, hey, you guys got it wrong. Jesus knew he wasn't the Messiah because Allah has no son. I mean, it's one of the little pieces of that, and it's right there. That's the verse. Let's stop and think about that for a minute. If there's any verse you're going to put 
around the top, that's kind of provocative, isn't it? It says to the Jews and it says to the Muslims, hey, you guys have got it all wrong. God doesn't have a son. That's the verse that's, that runs around the outside of the Dome of the Rock. Question? Um, I have one question, but I, I just had one comment. I thought it was kind of interesting when you realize that that's the top of the original mountain and that they built all that up around it. And, you know, there have been a number of earthquakes over the years in Jerusalem and in Israel, and certainly one of note on the day Jesus died, we know there was an earthquake. Mm -hmm. And our guide told us that that Al-Aqsa Mosque and all the other stuff around there has been rebuilt a number of times right. because of damage from earthquakes, but the top of the mountain never moves. Right. And I just thought that was really a graphic picture, mm -hmm. but all the rest of that's been raised up, and so it moves when the earth shakes, but that doesn't. That doesn't. Yeah, that's cool. Um, okay, I have one question, mm -hmm. if you're done. Uh, well, actually, I got one more slide. Uh, okay. I'm going to show you my favorite part of Jerusalem. <clears throat> this, this is a true story. Uh, and it's not an archaeological site. Uh, this is our, uh, our we, we're lucky to have a really good guide. When you do these trips, you have a teaching pastor that goes on these teaching tours. But you also have a guide who's registered, and they spend like two years. Our guide, great guy, his name is Ronan ben Moshe, uh, Ronan, son of Moses. And he uh, has a master's degree in Middle Eastern history. So he was, it was great having him. But the best thing he taught me on this trip was what a Jerusalem bagel is. <laughs> this is a Jerusalem bagel. But I don't want to mislead you, okay? If this gets technical, you can tell I'm kind of hungry right now. This is not dense like a bagel. It's actually pretty light and airy. And what you do, you'll see on the bottom left, that's us having lunch, is you take this Jerusalem bagel, and this thing is huge, and you just take chunks and you eat like they used to eat. You'll just tear off a chunk and you dip it and you eat. And they sell these. These things are stacked up in the street vendors all over the place. They eat these things all the time. And so what we would have is we'd have these big trays of um, hummus and a big uh, bowl of goat cheese, kind of a liquid, you know, the goat cheese, Laura's favorite, Yogurt with date honey in it, mixed in it, that uh, was good. My favorite, a bowl of pure date honey. And you would just dip and eat, and that was my favorite meal. If anyone ever sees one of these in Oklahoma City, would you please call the church and tell me where I can find it? Okay, that, was, that literally was the highlight of my Jerusalem trip. Okay, question. Okay, I do have a question that just came in. And I don't know if you have time to answer it, but why does Israel allow the Muslims to control the Temple Mount? I'll give you the short answer. But during the 1967 Six-Day War, uh, Moshe Dayan was smart enough to realize that they had taken the Golan Heights and they weren't going to give them back. They end up giving back some of the other territory they took from Egypt. They are not going to give Jerusalem back. They are smart enough to realize that we're going to keep control of Jerusalem itself, but if we try to control the Temple Mount and we try to do too much and we're going to bar the Muslims from their third holiest site, that we're going to keep fighting these wars forever. In other words, it was too provocative. Does that make sense? It was actually, in my view, a very... I mean, it's, yeah, people are going to have a lot of different opinions, so you're going to get my opinion. That's probably a pretty smart thing to do because I realize we haven't had peace since that time, but if you stop and think about it, relatively speaking,
because this could have been all-out war the whole time. So they made the decision at that time to let the mount itself be controlled by the Muslims. Now, Jews can go up there at certain times. They can go to the wall and pray, and Jews control Jerusalem. But it was probably a pretty astute move. Okay. When are you going back and taking us with you? Well, as hungry as I am, I want one of those bagels, and I'm going pretty soon. Actually, uh, we, we, probably, we will lead some tours because we, we really like this tour company. As you can see, just, this is just the tip of the iceberg of just how it makes the Bible come alive. So we'll do a trip this November, and then also currently also planning one the following May, so a year uh, from this May. And you have to plan these things out about 10 or 11 months ahead. So we'll do one in November. We'll do one the following May. Uh, we're just lining up the dates and uh, the prices and that kind of thing. We like this company because their, their, their prices are, are very, very reasonable as well. So we're, we're working on that. So we'll probably do this because it's part of a teaching ministry. I love the idea of doing teaching tours where we can go see things, but we can also make the Bible come alive while we do it. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, you can just uh, text Laura at this number or email us at the church. We'll put you on a list, and when things are finalized, if you're interested, we'll let you know about that. We'll probably advertise it in some way, but as soon as we get it done, we'll let you know. But I just think that'll be, a, I think it could be edifying for, for our congregation and uh, people in general. So we'll be back in November, but I, I don't want to wait that long. So if you see one of these in Oklahoma City, <laughs> let me know. Well, you guys have been patient. I hope this has helped make literally the Bible come alive a little bit and been encouraging to you. So thank you so much for your attention.